0: L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off. A lot can happen in the next three years.
2: Like
3: a chat bot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.
2: A warm welcome to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. Now, in this week's episode, we are going to be talking about women's health and taking a closer look at how and why women are let down by our healthcare systems, particularly when it comes to chronic pain. I'm joined today by Gabrielle Jackson, a celebrated journalist who turned her eye to this topic after being diagnosed with endometriosis in 2001. A staggering one in 10 women of reproductive age are diagnosed with endometriosis and yet it remains a condition that we know startlingly little about. More than a decade after her initial diagnosis, Gabrielle was shocked how little progress had been made in both the treatment and the understanding of this all too common condition. This prompted her to publish her own personal story in The Guardian Australia, something that kick-started an illuminating campaign by the paper. Very quickly, the personal stories of hundreds of women poured in, and Gabrielle started to explore the ways women are let down by our healthcare professionals, from doctors underestimating their pain to their conditions being under-researched. She's now written a book, Pain and prejudice, a call to arms for women and their bodies. And we've just had a really interesting chat about why women aren't always taken seriously by our doctors why conditions like endometriosis are still under-researched and underfunded and how we as women can even internalise biases that deprive us of the help we need and deserve. And don't worry, she'll be giving us a few action steps we can take to help ensure that we're getting proper care and that other women are too. Don't forget that if you'd like to watch our chat today the video podcast is available on YouTube and as always I am looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Instagram after the show and so let's hear it from Gabrielle. So Gabrielle a really really warm welcome to the show thank you for joining us all the way from Sydney Australia. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. I've I've followed you, I I know a little bit about your journey and I'm really looking forward to talking some more. Can you really start by taking us on a little bit of your personal journey here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm always happy to do it because people always tell me I'm describing their lives. So um, I, I I was the girl in high school who was in the sick bay every month And, um, month after month, it would be terrible, like not uh, period pain, but leg pain. Sometimes I have migraine, um, vomiting and diarrhea and no one ever seemed to think that, you know, there was anything wrong with this. One GP told me some women have bad period pain. You just have to live with it. Um, and I was at one stage diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. I, um, Went through, you know, finished high school, got on the pill like a lot of people to see if that could help manage my periods a bit better. Um, And it wasn't until I was 23 that I actually said to my GP, no, I'm sorry, this isn't right. I don't see anyone I know going through this. I want a referral to a gynaecologist. I actually had to demand it. And um, luckily for me, I happened to be referred to a gynaecologist who knew a lot about endometriosis, who had actually kind of specialised in it. And he um, explained the disease to me. I had a really good surgery. And um, my the period part of my pain was very well managed for a long time. But I also had all these other things wrong with me through my, um, you know, 20s and 30s, like dizzy spells, uh, irritable bowel syndrome type symptoms, um, the constant low and back and hip pain and sharp pain down the front of my right leg um, and these incredible bouts of fatigue that would really floor me. Um, And I just started to refer to myself as a hypochondriac because (laughs) I didn't want it to be something that people said about me behind my back so I would joke about it and I really did think of myself as someone who was a bit weak. And it wasn't until 2015 I heard about this um, this patient conference that was put on by a patient advocacy group, which is actually a mother and a daughter called Leslie and Sylvia Friedman who were just so disgusted at the lack of information about endometriosis when Sylvia was diagnosed that they decided to take the matter into their own hands and they gathered... All Australia's leading doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, researchers, all the leading people who knew about this disease in Australia. And they got them together in a um, university auditorium in Sydney. And they just invited patients to come and learn about their disease. And I went as a journalist because I thought I knew everything there was to know about endometriosis. I was in my late 30s by then. I had had it for 20 years. I'd managed... You know, one part of it quite well, and um, I, the first time I cried was when one of the researchers got up and said that women with endometriosis are 180 times more likely to have chronic fatigue than other women, and wow. um, I, I just was like, oh my god, that was something that I thought you know, I never talked about it because I was embarrassed because I'd seen other people with chronic fatigue syndrome and I thought, oh, am I as bad as them? Maybe I was exaggerating. Maybe I am a hypochondriac. And then Mm -hmm. um, they talked about back pain and leg pain. And a lot of people with endometriosis have irritable bowel syndrome or painful bladder (laughs) syndrome, Um, the dizziness. Rather than being a hypochondriac, I was actually a very typical patient with endometriosis. And No one in 20 years had told me that or had put together all my symptoms into one, uh, you know, typical patient picture. And, I mean, the the hardest thing about that was obviously I was relieved, but when you've spent so many years thinking Mm. that you are a weak person only to discover, actually, I'm not, that all these things that are wrong with me are, are the same disease, It's really confronting, and um, I think that medicine often fails to account for that kind of second-guessing that you do to yourself and what it does to your um, mental health, but also how you feel Mm. about yourself and your self-worth. All those things are really important.
2: Now, I was just going to say, if, if we look specifically at endometriosis, what exactly is it for those listening who perhaps are unaware of it and and what are the main symptoms? How would you know if you have it?
3: So it's when tissue, similar to the lining of the uterus, but importantly not the same, grows outside the uterus. So most commonly it's found inside the pelvic cavity. So it often attaches and causes adhesions, attaches to the organs um, and causes adhesions and inflammation and lots of pain. Um, you know, sometimes all the organs in the pelvic cavity are stuck together. Um, more rarely it's found outside the um, pelvic cavity on lungs and even there's been an instance where it's found in the brain. Um, Gosh. But because it has um, been considered part, you know, the endometrium found outside, it's always been considered men- a menstrual disease. But actually now what they've discovered is a a whole systems disease, multi-system disease. Um, Pain and um, inflammation are the main symptoms. But as I said, because it happens in the pelvic cavity, lots of other, you know, bladder and bowel um, symptoms and and those muscles really tighten. So very uh, commonly there is severe cramping and back, leg and hip pain as well. Um, it can cause infertility and um, often kind of poor sleep, anxiety, dizziness, these kind of um, Mm. symptoms come along with it as well.
2: And do we know what causes it? Is it genetic? Is it hormonal? Is it it only women who get it?
3: So it's not only women who get it, but it is much more common in women. Uh, There is no known cause but there is believed to be a genetic aspect so often um, someone's mother or auntie will have it and in a world where you know talking about menstruation is taboo that's a big problem because a lot of girls are told oh I had that too yeah I would pass out all the time and have to be taken by (laughs) ambulance that's just normal for us it's not normal. (laughs) <laughs> and if, yeah. we were, if we were more okay with talking about menstruation as a society, you know, we'd know that that is not actually normal and that should be investigated. But, yeah, um, yeah so there is a genetic component, but we would have no idea of the cause. There's been lots of theories over the years, but uh, there is not a good one, I, I don't think, mm-hmm. right now.
2: In your book, you you write about how doctors will frequently underestimate and dismiss women's pain. Why is this? And I mean, is there any data to back that up?
3: There's lots of studies that have been done to show that. um, There's studies that show that women wait longer in emergency for pain medication. There are studies that show both doctors and nurses um, under-prescribed painkillers after abdominal surgery because they think that women can cope with pain better, uh, there are studies that show both cancer and AIDS patients, um, women patients, are less likely to have their pain treated adequately. There's study after study that proves that this is a thing, and I think it's it's. For my book, I looked back at the history of how hysteria was treated, and this is this goes back to the earliest days of medicine. Uh, there's a, there's an idea that. Women are just, because childbirth can be painful, women are just pain is part of a woman's life. Yeah. Right. And because of that, they're better at coping and it shouldn't Mm -hmm. bother them. Yeah.
2: Whoa. So is there this uh, sort of stigma attached then of, of women being perceived as being more likely to be hypochondriacs?
3: Absolutely, yeah. They think that women come in... You know, there, there was a cardiologist in the US who said, we're trained in medical school to be on the lookout for hysterical women who come to the emergency department. And that's how women are often treated when they go to, um, to, to seek medical help. There's just this idea that women can't really cope. They're very highly anxious. They'll overreact to their pain. And everything that has actually been studied shows the opposite is true. There was a study yeah. done at, uh, in the US I think it was at Harvard that showed that women will actually delay going to emergency when they're having a heart attack. And one of the reasons is because they fear being labelled a hypochondriac.
2: That is just astonishing. <laughs>
3: Sorry, this is a bit, a bit bit of a side issue. Uh, but the other aspect of that is they say women go to the doctors more. So they, you know, well, women are forced to go to the doctors more. We have to go if we want to prevent pregnancy, have contraception. We have to go if we are pregnant. We have to go if we don't want to keep the pregnancy. We have to go when our children are little. And, and so medicine requires us to visit the doctor yeah. on all these occasions and then says, Oh, women love
2: to go to the doctors. <laughs> it, it's very much you have to go, you have to go, you know, get your, your your mammograms when you're an older woman, you have to go for your cervical smears regularly, you know, you do have to turn up. So, yes, you know, you look around a doctor's waiting room and, and it is it is filled with women. And it is really that that's really striking, though, that even if you do go to the doctor and you do get a good diagnosis of endometriosis there still doesn't seem to be a cure. So, you know, what is it that's holding back the research there? What's happening with women's health care?
3: So one of the most astonishing things that I discovered in researching my book and in writing about these things for The Guardian was that medicine just doesn't know that much about women's health because we've never, they've never studied female biology in the way that they have studied male biology. Almost everything we know about human health comes from the study of male animals and male humans.
2: Wow. Even animals?
3: Even animals. Even animals Mm. to this day, they routinely say we can't use female animals because their oestrus cycle, menstrual cycle might interfere with the results.
2: And, and, you know, we now know how how important our hormones are and, you know, estrogen in particular, how it, it affects so many things. I was reading that that drug trials, you know, don't have women participants. So we have really no clear idea in many cases of, of what the effects are of a certain medication for somebody with estrogen.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge issue that there, there was a big women's health campaign in the um, 70s, 80s and 90s, which changed some of that. So, they had to include women in clinical trials from the 90s. Can you believe that recently? Um, wow. But they, that didn't change in preclinical research. Um, so it was only in 2016 that the National Institutes of Health in the US said, if you are, you know, you have to include female animals in your study or we're not going to give you money. But a, a study that looked at that last year is, has found that they're not really doing it properly. Uh, They're just like including one female or a couple of female animals and not (laughs) analyzing the results for any difference. So we're still so far from knowing um, the truth of that. And and actually there was a study done that showed that the drugs that were taken off the market for adverse results mostly were adverse results in women. And that's because a lot of drugs Uh have not been adequately tested and they don't know what is gonna happen on the market. And it's much harder to collect results once it's being sold to the public than it would be in a, cl- yeah. in a safe clinical trial.
2: Yeah, so what can we do about this? I mean, is there any legislation now that says that if you are researching a new drug and you're bringing it to market, that at least you have to be testing it on 50% female and 50% male in, participants in the trial?
3: You do have to include um, women in human trials and I don't think it's a law but it's frowned upon to not include female animals but as I said, we're still a long way behind where we should be and I think it's about time there was legislation to enact that because, you know, we've given them centuries to do the right thing and it hasn't happened and I think it's time that government stepped in and did something about it because... women's health is really suffering and there's no excuses you know they say you know of course it sounds scary to test drugs on pregnant women for example but if they're going to take it after it's approved you know there are safe ways to test certain there are certain drugs that you couldn't test on pregnant women but there are some that don't interact with the the systems that you can test in in a safe environment and we just need Mm -hmm. to listen to the Amazing, mostly female, but some male scientists who are doing this work and and make sure that that's done.
2: Yeah. Have you noticed any change since writing your book and since talking about this?
3: I've noticed a huge change. So after I went to that conference, the Guardian did an investigation into endometriosis and that was in 2015. And I can't remember ever seeing the word in a, in a media outlet before then. But it has changed dramatically since then. The BBC has done some amazing stuff on endometriosis. Lots of publications are writing about it and women's voices are being heard. Uh, so that's a great thing. But endometriosis is uh, one of the more respectable, let me put through my air quotes here, uh, diseases <laughs> that affect women because it is, there is a physical aspect to it. You know, you can you can operate and see a physical disease and you can cut it out and that makes doctors feel really good and it makes women feel really good because they can say, see, I wasn't making it up, it's not all in my head, there's this physical aspect. However, lots of research has shown that the extent of the physical disease doesn't correlate to the symptoms. So you can have not many you know, symptoms and have really severe endometriosis lesions. On the other hand, you can have not much to see under a microscope, but your symptoms can be really severe. So there's often a chronic pain aspect of endometriosis that is at play and that is not really being treated because sometimes women are having multiple surgeries, seven, eight, nine surgeries, and that's considered by experts to be really poor practice because the yeah. more you operate, the more scar tissue, the more inflammation, you know, the more adhesions, and that can actually increase pain after a certain time. So I do worry that endometriosis is getting a lot of publicity, and, but the treatments being offered are not the best treatments available. And there are other diseases like fibromyalgia and ME, chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, that are kind of being ignored and, and they're the they're the things you can't see under a microscope. They're the diseases that we are so far behind in in our understanding of them, how the mechanisms and how they work, that they are kind of um, suffering the same kind of stigma that endometriosis has traditionally suffered.
2: Mm. If you are somebody that has chronic pain or chronic fatigue, and the odd sort of pelvic twinge, so you may not immediately think, oh, there's something going on in the pelvic region that's triggering this. How would you get tested? Is there a definitive black and white test? Can they take a a biopsy for a tissue sample to say definitively, oh, yes, you've definitely got endometriosis?
3: No, um, there's nothing like that. Uh, and that's a big problem, uh, because the only definitive diagnosis is, um, looking at the endometriosis tissue under a microscope after laparoscopic surgery. So it's a very, it's an invasive surgery to get a diagnosis. Yeah. And that is obviously far from ideal and not possible in many countries and for many women. And, um, you know, there are better scans now. Some kinds can be seen in a pelvic ultrasound. Some can be seen on an MRI. But it's not definitive until they've actually looked at it. And um, so, you know, that's that's a major difficulty.
2: Absolutely going to come on to that, that there are a lot of chronic pain issues disorders for women um that aren't immediately obvious what the cause is so do you think this could be the the root of misdiagnosis in a lot of women
3: yeah absolutely i think that uh yeah as you said chronic pain is a big issue for women out of all the chronic pain diseases the most severe ones and um endometriosis fibromyalgia rheumatoid arthritis osteoarthritis migraine They're all more common in women. They're predominantly Mm -hmm. women who make up those diseases. And I think that that is part of the reason we don't understand chronic pain. You know, also it it affects lots of different, it's perceived in the brain, but it's felt other places. There's not one specialty that really covers all the areas where pain is happening and Um, I just think, as I said before, because we haven't really studied female biology that much, we're really behind on understanding the mechanisms of chronic pain. Um, And actually, even though 70% of patients, chronic pain patients are women, 80% of pain drugs have been tested on men or male mice. So we are just not really studying the right things. One study said nothing about chronic pain in women can be inferred by the study of male animals, nothing. So I actually spoke to a pain researcher who said to me that he thinks that there's probably really good treatments that might work on women that have just been thrown in the scientific bin because they've been tested on male animals and the the way that pain is perceived and the way that pain works is very different in uh, the male and female brain.
0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is so,
2: so interesting. And I think it leads on to a discussion really about female hormones, because we now know that oestrogen, for example, has such a large plot to play in our immune system. I was interested, actually, I was looking at your Instagram and, and saw that you had put up some posts not that long ago about long covid and how that was disproportionately affecting women. And there have been some really interesting studies uh, ongoing here, but some early results indicating that it's women who are lower in estrogen who are having more of an issue with long COVID. And we know that estrogen is part of our immune system and our immune response. So therefore, presumably any of these sort of autoimmune issues involving chronic pain, they must surely have a connection with estrogen somewhere, do you
3: think? Uh, Yeah, I have spoken to a couple of um, researchers who have mentioned this, but they've mentioned it um, in the sense that maybe it's testosterone that is protecting men from pain. Interesting. the women who have really, this is still a theory, and I've just been told this by researchers, so I I, I, want to be Mm. really careful about what I say, Um, but they are uh, looking at whether women with low testosterone have more pain and some studies that have been done on people transitioning have shown that uh, people who had pain and then transitioned to men, their pain reduced and vice versa. Um, and so that is a really interesting way to to avenue because some of the women with chronic pain had taken the pill for years and they may have low testosterone that may be making their pain worse or more testosterone may protect them from pain i want to be really careful about this because this is all theoretical and i'm I'm not an expert um but i yeah absolutely we have to consider the hormone hormonal balance um Mm. for sure and yeah, we do know it plays a role in our immune system and it's really interesting to look at long COVID. I think it's actually a really fantastic opportunity to study all these issues and to look at how the transition from a virus, a viral infection, to longer-term illnesses because, you know, it's very common for viral infections to then trigger long-term illnesses like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, ME. So it's a really amazing opportunity to actually look at what's to study this huge group of patients and to to see how the disease progresses and to look more carefully at the mechanisms and what is happening in patients.
2: Yes. One of the things that's uh, coming out here in the UK is looking at something called mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS which has been shown to be potentially driving long COVID and that the people who are coming down with long COVID are actually suffering from MCAS. And there is this big link between histamine and estrogen and the mast cells and how that's all working. And and you're right to your point. I think this does present an opportunity. There's an awful lot of research, isn't there, that's now being fast-tracked to do with COVID and you know if we can get some results and some information specifically that are female focused there was a really interesting study on women taking HRT for example showing that they seem to be better protective from from the effects of COVID or from going into ICU if, if they have their hormone levels replaced.
3: I saw that that was really interesting yeah and actually um, just last month I think the US Congress gave a billion dollars in funding to study long COVID. And this could be a real game changer. These these, these people have been begging for money for so long. And it it came about about because of um, lots of women and some men uh, really lobbying. Lots of women's health groups came together with the long COVID groups and some ME um, groups in the U.S and they lobbied together as an alliance. and this is this is a huge win. It is so promising and fills me with such happiness and hope.
2: Oh, good. Oh, it's nice to have some hope. I have to say, uh, hearing you talk about testosterone uh, reminded me of a couple of things. Um, one is that I learned not that long ago that actually women make more testosterone in their ovaries than they do estrogen. So, you know, it's not just a male hormone, you know, to your point about having the right no. balance. Yeah you know mm-hmm. we've got to have both exactly. and you guys in, in Australia we at the moment in the UK we don't have a medical license to give women testosterone which is ridiculous considering that it's part of our bodies and in Western Australia I think they were the first to actually license it for women with a product called Androfem.
3: Oh really I didn't know that that's great news and uh, the this- Researchers I spoke to did say they were giving things off label, and
2: um,
0: yes.
3: you know it is so controversial. And like, why is it controversial? As you say, we produce it in our yes. own bodies. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's not. It's not artificial. You know, it's just that we had it and now we don't have it. So we'd like some more, please, yeah. to help with all sorts of things. <laughs> but interesting that there could be this this pain connection, um, and and I think. I guess I guess in all of this that there, there is hope isn't there.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting avenue. Mm.
2: So what what kind of things do you find help you now? I mean you you must have got to a stage where you're hopefully able to better manage it. Do you have certain things do you pay attention to gut health for example? Are there any sort of strategies that you personally have found beneficial?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Oh my god, my quality of life is so much better after discovering so much more about my own disease and how to manage it and finding some really great doctors to help me yeah. with that. So I have, you know, I think I have have to accept that this is something that I live with, and that there's not a cure, but I can manage mm. it very well now and live very well day to day. It's a combination of medicine um, that I use and also really important is... Um, getting the right amount of exercise so really um hard cardio just Mm -hmm. does not work for me i end up in uh, all sorts of pain terrible um pain but so the right amount so i found yoga even walking just moving the muscles in the hips is so important Mm because they just tighten and clench up when they're not being moved gently so uh it's day-to-day management like getting a really good sleep pattern helps me not overcommitting myself. I think lots of people with chronic pain, on the days they feel good, we try to do so much because we're like, oh, yes, I'm feeling yeah. I've got lots of Make energy, I'm going to go for it. And, uh, and then I suffer, you know, um, the next day or during the next week. So just managing my time a little bit better and um, also just knowing when I have a flare-up that it's going to pass is an, an understanding that it's a mechanism and uh, that has been really helpful to me. Um, but there was one, like, really cheap little drug that a, a gynaecologist put me on that really changed my life and it also has improved my health, um, sleep. So that has really helped me too. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's an effort.
2: Well, I mean, well done on on finding strategies and also recognizing that you have flare-up days. And, you know, my my daughter, who I have done podcasts with before, um, she has an autoimmune condition. She has MCAS and and gets terrible and kind of whole body migraines and is, is massively incapacitated and in huge amounts of pain. And two things really that she's taught me, one is that that you do have these flares. And she'll, she'll journal them and she will recognize that it is a flare. And as you say, it'll flare up, but it will also flare down. And, and there is light, hopefully, eventually, but also this whole awareness, I think of hidden disability, because with chronic pain, such as endometriosis, it's not visible. You know, you're not walking with a limp, you know, you you don't, you don't look ill. And yet there's an enormous amount of trauma going on inside. And I think the more aware we become of hidden disabilities, the, the better and the more sympathetic as a society that we'll be.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. That's so important to recognise.
2: Yeah, that not everybody is, is coping. They may look as if they're coping, um, but actually inside. I remember she was went to an art museum once and she, she felt dreadful, but her friend wanted to take her. And she, for the very first time, sat in a wheelchair that they had at the entrance of the of the of the um of the gallery. And she had a really lovely afternoon being wheeled around, enjoying the art and enjoying the exhibits. But she said when she left, she felt so guilty because she stepped out of the wheelchair and she could see the dirty looks that she was getting from other people. And she felt like, you know, raging at them, I am in chronic pain, I may be able to walk and I may not look sick. But you know, please, just just throw me a line here because it's it is debilitating.
3: It is. And it's really important because even within medicine, you know, if you go with chronic pain, and a doctor says, tell me, you know, on the pain scale, (laughs) lots of people will have been asked this, where is your pain from one to 10? And doctors are trained yeah. to look for physical symptoms. You know, and when, you know, I've broken my back, I you know, I've had broken shoulder, I've felt what they consider a ten out of ten pain, right? And so they, you know, it's a very different experience to chronic pain. And I feel I'm a very good person to be able to say, since I've had the worst pain, acute pain and also chronic pain, that chronic pain is worse because There's all these other things that just make you feel so terrible, the brain fog and and you, um, you know, kind of feel like you've got flu-type symptoms. You just feel terrible as well as having the pain. It's very different and doctors still aren't really trained to recognise the differences and they'll be like, oh, well, this woman came in and she was on Facebook and she was like on her mobile and then she tries to tell me she's in 10 out of 10 pain. Well... Yeah, she doesn't have a broken bone. It's a different kind of pain. And I think that we have to be much better, not only doctors, as a society.
2: It's so heartbreaking listening to you. It really is. Do discussions about mental health help or do they make people think it's all in the mind? What, what's your view on that?
3: This is really tricky because it's not, these diseases aren't caused by mental health issues. But a lot of people who have chronic pain have mental health issues and there could be a lot of reasons for that. You know, poor quality of life because of a lack of good treatments because medicine hasn't studied these diseases. Um, Also being, (laughs) being ignored or disbelieved by sometimes it's your friends and family who don't really believe you as well as doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals. And just living in pain every day is really hard. And so sometimes people do end up with depression and anxiety, which is natural, but not everyone who has chronic pain or autoimmune diseases has a mental health condition and not everyone who has a mental health, has depression, has chronic pain. So they are very different. But Mm. um, I was really, I've been criticised in the past for not um, acknowledging that enough to dismiss mental health concerns, because of the history of women being told it's all in their head, it's so frustrating when the first thing, when you go and report all these physical symptoms, people just want to talk to you about depression or put you on an antidepressant. That is enraging. But there was a survey put out during COVID asking um, endometriosis patients uh, what, their priorities are for access to healthcare and access to mental health services was very high on their list of priorities. So just as we would never accept that our physical symptoms are not managed, I think we should also not accept that the mental health problems are also not managed. You know, they should both be managed as part of your treatment. And um, it's not Mm -hmm. saying that one is causing the other or one is because of the other, you know, they are part of a of a multi-system disease that um, should be, you know, treated properly.
2: Yeah. Endometriosis doesn't have a cure yet, but has your journey here personally and professionally led you to be optimistic about treatments for the future?
3: Yeah, in in one way, I'm really hopeful. And I met so many um to healthcare professionals and researchers who are really dedicated to helping people with endometriosis, and there is a lot of lot more research um, going, lots of, lots more research money going into endometriosis. Um, I think that patients should be having more of a say in the kind of research that gets funded. That's that's how breast cancer changed from a death sentence to being able to be treated because women took control of the kinds of research. There's a lot of really bad research that gets funded in endometriosis. Uh, So I think that should be part of it. And another part of it has to be, you know, it's not only the patients with endometriosis and other chronic pain conditions that are kind of stigmatised and looked down on. It's also the doctors who treat these patients. It's kind of considered yucky in medicine and and the doctors who look after it a kind of looked down on that that's not considered important or interesting, and that leads to them being paid really poorly compared to other doctors. And it also means that research money doesn't flow there because it's not considered kind of sexy or interesting. So this is uh, a real problem that we have to deal with um, kind of on a macro scale. And I think it's time for kind of governments yes. and policymakers to get involved.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, totally. I mean, the the, the gender bias is is there, definitely. And and I've heard it said before that with pain conditions like migraine, like ME, fibromyalgia, you know, they're they're not life threatening. And therefore, you know, to your point, they're not they're not sexy. They're not cutting edge. And so that the funding, the research funding doesn't tend to be there because you're not likely to die of it. At least not immediately. You're just going to have to live with it, which is is just not satisfactory on any level, is it?
3: Absolutely not. And, you know, premature ejaculation isn't life-threatening either, but that certainly hasn't suffered from a lack of study or funding for research. <laughs> uh, you know, we just don't think of these things the same way, you know. It, yeah. It's, it, yeah. Is, it is life-threatening <laughs> to some people because the mental... Yeah, it, 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 when you can't work, when you feel like you can't get out of bed every day... That is life-threatening and also we are denying women their humanity. You know, we are saying your opportunities in life don't count. You know, it doesn't matter that you suffer day every single day of your life or half the time. You know, it is just it, it, it's that, that a lot of people say that it's not life-threatening so that's why it doesn't get funding. That just doesn't stack up when you look at all the other diseases that get funding.
2: So, what can we do about it, Gabrielle? What, what's what's your call to action for us? we you know, for everybody listening here, what what can we do to try and help be part of this solution?
3: Um, so, I say there's there's three things we have to listen to women, believe women, and study women. Um, and I don't want to. Um, I realise I'm leaving out some people, and I and I should say that there are people who menstruate who have chronic pain, and there are who might not identify as women. We must study them too. We have to, there is so much to learn. And, um, but this is a gendered issue. So that's why I use women in that context. And um, this is a whole society problem, right? What is Me Too about if it's not about not listening to women? You know, our judicial system doesn't listen to women. Politicians don't listen to women. It's just a massive problem. And, but I really feel confident that medicine is capable of rapid change. And I mentioned breast cancer earlier. You know, it was only 50 years between breast cancer being a death sentence and breast cancer being really able to be treated in a lot of women. And that was because of the work of women. Yeah. And as I said, they took control of what research was getting funded and they had a say in that. And I think we can we can do it again. And there is just a lot more people talking about this. There's books being written, you know, it's on journalists' radars. Uh, we have to really push. I mean, I think there's there's a really sad aspect to this that a lot of people who live with chronic pain do not have the energy to do the kind of lobbying that happened around breast cancer. So we need allies to help. Of course. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and but I think that, you know, it is a matter of social justice and I think that the the conversation has begun and thank you so much for having me on to talk about it today because this is the kind of thing that, that, you know, starts social change movements.
2: Yeah, it's a real pleasure and I wish you hugely good health and thank you very much for taking the time and I know the time difference has been tricky but thank you very much for being with us here massive success to you and your book and your work I should be following with interest and let's hope that we really achieve something as quickly if not quicker than we've done with uh, with breast cancer there as well Gabrielle thank you so much
3: thank you so much for having me
2: And that's it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Gabrielle. And as always, you will find the links and the resources that we mentioned over on LizelleWellbeing.com. There you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. It's filled with plenty of healthy ideas, recipes and tips for living well, including, importantly, sleep and exercise, as we talked about just now. Huge thanks to all of you who have left such lovely reviews. It really does help others to find the show and hopefully find perhaps some help that they might need. So until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye. Our Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, with production by Amira Earle and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue. With thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de
0: la Morinire. l-d-e-j-a-n-e-i-r-o Soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS 10 for 10% off.